Welcome to the SAMA Podcast, where we talk to the most experienced people in B2B to find answers to one simple question. How can you become and remain essential to your strategic customers? Tune in as our guests reveal what it takes to become the supplier they cannot afford to lose. Learn how to level up your account management strategies to promptly deliver speed, convenience, and success to each customer. Let's jump into the discussion right now with Denise Fryer and Harvey Dunham. Welcome to our Samba podcast series, Martin. We really appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge and your insights into the state of play between B2B strategic account managers and account managers and their procurement counterparts. I know this is going to be a great conversation, so let's just jump right into it and I want to start because I saw your LinkedIn profile. You've really focused most, if not all, of your career on how customers buy and why they don't. How did you land on that? Well, thank you, Harvey. Yes, you are right. I've actually spent my career looking at sales, and I had this pivot 20 years ago. I guess I'm a learner, and I always enjoyed, when I right from when I started in sales, I always enjoyed learning best practices. I always enjoyed learning new sales methodologies, new sales training programs, sales tactics, and looking to see what the best practices were. And obviously try and incorporate that in my own and my team's approaches. And then I started my own company a little over 20 years ago. And fortunately, fortunately, one of my early clients, the CEO, had about 20 salespeople working for him, small company, stuck at about $25 million a year. And he said, I think I've got a great team. I know we've got a great strategy, but our customers just aren't signing up. They're interested. They tell me great things, but they just don't sign up. And he said, could you talk to some of our customers? And I said, well, yeah, I'd be happy to. And as a third party, I was able to do that kind of from a third party perspective. And I agreed with him that the strategy seemed right. The solution he was taking to market seemed extremely powerful. His sales force did seem indeed to be kind of very competent. So what was it? So I talked to the customers and I got a totally different perspective of what was going on. I got the behind the scenes look at. So it's worth selling. It's worth bringing together what we think is a no-brainer offer to the market. What are customers thinking? And it was this revelation. And so we were able to put together a picture of what are customers doing and why are they not signing up? Why are they so interested in not signing up? We could find the barriers and then we recast their strategy and selling approach. And from that moment on, their sales took off and they had continued success and they were acquired for nearly a billion dollars a few years later. So that started us down a path of saying, wow, when you're trying hard to sell something, it's a great idea if you've got somebody engaged with you that's trying hard to buy something. So why don't we really always look behind the scenes at how customers are buying and why they may not? So that started us down the road. We repeated the trick for a few years, then realized this works, that this is something that we should really focus on. So about 15 years ago, we took all of our research and kind of made that the foundation of what we do. Amazing. I have this picture of procurement people and salespeople talking, and there's no communication taking place. There's a lot of words going back and forth, but the two sides are speaking a different language. They're almost generally looking through a keyhole at each other. And there's a whole amount of stuff that's going on in each of their worlds that are not really making it through that keyhole. So we look, you can get a very good view through a keyhole, 
but it's only so much of the total picture. Right. So this is clearly an inspiration to you, but we'll kind of fast forward to the last three years since COVID struck and the pandemic struck and all in it. It almost seems like this card game, 52 card pickup, where you just take the 52 cards and spray them all over the Roma. The game has totally changed. People have had to pick up the cards and reorganize them and reorganize themselves. So from your perspective, have you ever seen this kind of disruption and change this much at one time? I've been through a few of the cycles, but I I think what you said is key. It's I've seen a lot of disruption happen, but at this time, at one moment. So what I think has happened, what COVID did, and it did it just in so many areas, it accelerated changes and trends that were there anyway plus called discontinuous change. And it was totally unprecedented. It wasn't like most economic recessions that come along or shifts that come along, that they come in slowly and you can predict them to an extent. COVID hit us so hard, unprecedented, and really changed so many things. So yeah, I got to agree that this is a very, very different time. I wonder if maybe you could just, going back to this conversation about looking through the keyhole, as Sam's are looking at their procurement counterparts and the procurement is looking... How does it look to you? Because you get a chance to see both sides. I'd love to, uh, generally speaking, what's happened to the sales folks and what's happened to the, the yeah. procurement folks? Well, doing what we do for a living, which is kind of finding out how customers buy. So all the time, I've got a research team talking to customers across the world in different industries about how they buy, how they buy particular offerings for our clients. And so when COVID hit, we continued to do our work. And so we're really picking up a theme of, What's changed? How are you now buying? And so we did a whole series of research in the first six to nine months of COVID on what's changed and how you buy and what you expect from a salesperson that's different. And we picked up on some very, very interesting trends. Obviously, the big thing is there's no face-to-face meetings and those kind of things, right? Now, the thing that we found, there was one thing above all else that people said they want from their salespeople. This was framed in terms of Now we live in this world where so much is virtual, that we rely on virtual ways of communication. We're using the internet for so many things as we were anyway. But what do you want from a salesperson above all else, given what's changed? So that was the kind of the question, the research we were doing in part. And the answer fascinates me, totally fascinates me, because the number one thing above all else that came out across industry was to the salespeople, please don't waste my time. I don't want you coming and doing a one-hour presentation in PowerPoint where only 10 minutes is relevant to me. That was the number one thing. What intrigues me about that is what the heck has that got to do with COVID? Like, you mean before COVID, they were welcoming salespeople, wasting their time? (laughs) They were welcoming big PowerPoints that had nothing to do with them? Of course they weren't. They were tolerating them. They were tolerating them because that's what they had always done. That's what, sadly, they expected salespeople to do. Now, COVID comes along, and one of the things it did made everybody conscious of their time, which is really interesting. Is without doubt something that happened, that people don't want long Zoom meetings, right? So one of the things that we've noticed is people said that time is more important to them, which is interesting again. So that's what put the focus on, and the number one thing they said is, don't waste my time. So from that, we can extrapolate a lot of knowledge that no longer can Sam's turn up unprepared. In fact, we heard that time and time again. I expect my salespeople to be prepared. 
when I meet with my account manager, I expect them to have done the research on me and my company and what's happening in my industry, as I will have done on them and their company. So that was the number one message we got. People certainly said, yes, I still value having an account manager who's there for me, that understands me, my company, my industry, my needs. So without doubt, these folks said they still value a salesperson, but this is what they want from them. Interesting. Do you have any perspective uh, kind of going the other direction of what you see or what you're hearing from your procurement counterparts? Have the expectations changed from the procurement people? Do they have to, they still need to do their research and all those kinds of things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And of course, we can match the point that procurement is only part of the buying journey. When we look at a buying journey, we look at everything that goes on across the organization from the very first time they get an idea that maybe we should be doing something in manufacturing to do whatever. Maybe we should be introducing different technology into the way we, whatever it is, somewhere there's an acorn planted. And then we trace what happens throughout the entire organization, not just to when they buy, but when they actually then utilize the product. Because one of the interesting things about a buying journey and what I just described is very rarely are people focused on buying. That is not the end game. Now we could talk about that because to a lot of sales folk, the end game is getting the order. To the customer, to the buyer, that's almost inconsequential in their journey. It's something they do in order to get to where they want to go, which is the adoption of that product offering and the benefit it gives them. So across the whole buying journey, we see many, many things happening. We can talk more about that later. If we zoom in on the procurement and the role of procurement, without doubt, what we're seeing there is procurement is becoming more and more informed. They do not meet with a strategic account manager until they have done an awful lot of homework. Sadly, we see in most cases, the procurement person far more knowledgeable about the salesperson than we see the other way around. That particular element, I mean, I've seen research pointing to this before, something like the fact that maybe the procurement people have been studying for six months prior to that meeting, thinking about what the company needs and who the competitors are, who the particular suppliers are, rather, and doing their homework. Whereas the Sam might start, well, hopefully before he gets in his car to to drive over and meet with the customer, but they're starting much later in the cycle and not going in to anywhere near the depth. You're so right. Procurement people specialize in procuring all day long. That is one part of the buying journey. The SAM is, is hopefully looking at many other aspects of the buying journey. And the transaction of selling and buying is not quite such in focus. I'll give you a statistic that we found a few years ago that the average procurement person gets 17 times more training than the average salesperson. And of course, they're the, let's kind of blow away a myth here. Procurement are the ultimate, that they sign the check. So they have the money. So from a SAM perspective, that's what you're after. So they feel like they're the gatekeepers. And so the SAM in some ways takes on a kind of a, I need to service appeal to the procurement person because they are the people that are going to give me the money. And so you're beholden to them. Let's blow that away right now. It's the other way around. The only reason they would give you money is because they're going to benefit from what they're getting from you. 
So when we look at the equation, who's giving who the gift? It ain't the procurement person paying the dollar. It's the salesperson giving you something that's going to create $2 for you. So in fact, that age-old equation of the procurement person has the purse strings is a myth. It's the other way around. The Sam should walk in knowing that they've got the value. Now, I don't want to put them into a position of being arrogant. That's not going to work. But we've got to walk in there knowing that if we're asking for a million dollars, we're going to give that company $1.6 million back in the first 18 months or whatever it is. If we can't walk in with that mindset, something is wrong. But unfortunately, we look at that million dollars and we're beholden to the purchasing and procurement people. It should be the other way around. From a procurement perspective, and we talk to Sam's and remind them about this all the time, but it seems from time to time their minds get closed. But more and more and more, these decisions are being made in a committee. Oh, gosh. Well, (laughs) absolutely. So let's expand our focus for a moment to the whole buying journey. Right. And I'll give you another statistic here. If you track the buying journey, you're going to find a number of things. First of all, a buying journey is usually a journey of education, learning. That as a buyer, and I mean the entire buying organization, as they go through their buying journey, they're educating themselves. They're finding out more about the alternatives. They're finding out what options they've got available. They're finding out how this is going to work for them. They're finding out some of the nits in terms of what they'll have to handle. So they're learning as they go through that buying journey, which means things are changing. Second thing you're going to see is the very large number of players that get involved. And you will see it's like a dynamic network of individuals that come in and go into that buying journey that can have quite a significant impact. Even somebody who is maybe low in the organization, if you look at it hierarchically, can really massively upset a buying journey with some knowledge or a hesitancy or whatever it may be. So you do get this network, this dynamic network of people. The day of the decision maker has gone. And this idea of call high, not that I wouldn't say turn down a meeting with the CEO, absolutely. But the idea of calling high and finding a decision maker, that comes from the 80s. That is not the way buying journeys work today. The buying journeys move through this dynamic network of individuals that come in and go out. You can anticipate that. You can anticipate what's going to happen. You can anticipate the roles that are going to get involved and you can anticipate what they're going to bring to the agenda. And we'll talk more about that if you like. But overall, the buying journey, all of this happens. The average SAM is only involved in less than 10% of the activities across the entire buying journey. They tend to be involved with the procurement folk. They tend to be involved with some obvious key players. But all the things that go on in that buying journey, which really influence what happens, and I believe a SAM could bring value to because they've seen other organizations go through similar buying journeys, they're not invited to the party. They're not there. So SAMs are only involved in less than 10% of the buying journey, which is a tremendous opportunity. Is this because they're just not curious enough, inquisitive enough, or is it because procurement won't give them that information and likes to keep them in the dark? Both. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hit that second one first, the procurement. Now, procurement and a strategic account manager fit together like this. Strategic account managers are protective of who from their organization gets involved with their account. Procurement are the very same way. They're protective of who's going to get involved with a strategic account manager. They also want to be the keeper of the key. They don't want strategic account managers running around the organization and doing whatever they they should be doing. They want to lock that down. 
I understand that. Our role as a strategic account manager is to unlock that. First of all, they're not controlling our competitors. If our competitors are not doing business with them, our competitors are not locked into procurement and our competitors are running around all over their organization. Right. So the first thing is we can say to procurement, if you can stop all my competitors talking to everybody else in the organization, I won't talk to anybody else in the organization. The second thing we can do is we can tell them, I would like to go and meet with other people and I will always let you know where I am and who I'm talking to and what the conversation was. So you coordinate them in. I've had a lot of success with that strategy saying that I'm not going to be running a month. I will tell you who I'm meeting with, what the agenda is. You can come to the meeting, et cetera. They still may not like that, but we've got to really got to break out of that. We've got to do everything we can to break out of the bounds of procurement. Second part of it is then, so when we do that, why aren't we invited to the party? The sad truth, but we can break this again. The sad truth is that all of those things that go on in the buying journey the folk don't think the salespeople can bring value to. So for instance, I'm thinking about maybe I'm one of the buyers and I'm thinking about how am I going to use this? How am I going to train people? How are we going to integrate this with what we do? Or maybe how am I going to get infection control on side? Or whatever it is, as the buyer, these are the things I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what are the implications of me actually adopting this? Who else do I need to get on side? How do I, whatever it may be, put my business case together? The sad thing is they don't turn to the SAM as a resource at that time. That's sad because as a SAM, you've seen other people do that. You should have that information. So you've got to be overt in helping your buyer buy. And sometimes that can feel like you're actually putting up hurdles in your own way when you're talking to a key player and say, well, you know, we're going to have to get infection control or HR on side. We should be thinking about an implementation plan. And there's these issues because people are going to need training and that can sometimes put people off and the union may get involved. So it sounds like you're bringing up your own hurdles. But in fact, what you're doing is you're helping your buyer buy because all of those things are going to happen. So you can bring them up right at the start, early in your conversation. You say, well, as you consider our solution, these are the things you're going to have to think through. Here are the people you're going to get on site. And here's how I and my organization can help you. So you're proactively dealing with those issues and you're showing how you can bring value to the buying journey. We've only had a chance to meet once before. And I remember something you said, and it really stuck with me, which is that many of these buyers are buying a given product or solution for the first time. Could you dig into that for us a little bit? Because that was a shocker for me. I was. That's exactly right, that you're offering them whatever product or service that you're offering, maybe have never bought that before. In many, many cases, that's what SAMs are doing. They're bringing innovation, novel, new, creative solutions to the table. That's what they should do. That's great. But for the company, they've never done this before. So they're going to get lost in the buying journey because as they try and do this, they're going to get lost in those issues. That when they look at this, and we've had such trivial examples that blossom into huge issues, Like we were talking to, well, we were working with an organization that had these wonderful antibacterial clothes for healthcare workers to wear, scrubs, essentially scrubs. They were antimicrobial. And if liquid touched them, the liquid would be repelled. It was just fantastic. And yeah, they cost a little bit more than normal scrubs, but the value that you get from this. So again, it would look like this is a no brainer, but the unions, (laughs) wait a minute, 
our healthcare workers in the union can buy any scrubs they want. Some of them like to buy scrubs with Donald Duck on. You're now telling them they have to buy these scrubs? No, we're trying to actually protect them. <laughs> but the union gets involved and the union's got some anxieties. Then you've got all sorts of other issues to deal with. Well, you know that's going to happen. So again, you've seen this happen. You've seen, in this case, hospital after hospital after hospital do this. So you bring it up first. You tell your buyer, well, we've got to work with the union. We've got to show the union why this is beneficial for their workers and that we aren't trying to restrict their choice. We're trying to protect them in terms of their hostile work environment. So yes, so your customer may be going through this buying journey for the very first time, and it's a voyage of discovery and one that they can get lost in and one that will often end in indecision because they hit a wall and they go, man, this is too big a mountain for us to climb right now. We'll come back to it another time, but we got too much else going on. Indecision, stop. Whereas you have seen this buying journey so many times. And one of the things we found out, which was a revelation for me, is buyers buy in remarkably similar ways. That's how we define a market. We define a market now as people who will buy a particular product or service in a similar way. So you can predict those things. You can say, right, the union's going to get involved. Infection control is going to get involved. This is what procurement is going to worry about. This is where they're going to stumble when they think about implementation. This is how they're going to kind of get hung up around training people. Whatever it is, you can predict it. And if you can predict it, you can manage it. So if I'm a Sam and you're the procurement person, could I say, Martin, can I start with a simple question? Have you ever bought a product or a service like my company is offering before? Is this, do you have any experience with this? Yep. Is that a good question to start with? And, and totally. You're just trying to understand what they know. And then if they don't know, you should really be in a good position to say, well, could we just start by having a little conversation about how this, what we see works best? Not saying this just generally, this is what we see with the different customers that we work with. Absolutely. We totally have seen that be very successful. So we map out buying journeys. So we'll look for our customers. What is the buying journey that somebody's going to go through? And we've had our customers go to their customers and share that and say, we know that you're buying this for the first time. So here's the map. Here's what we see as what has to happen through your buying journey. These are the people that need to be involved. These are the concerns that they're going to have. You have to think about through through implementation. You have to think through the implications. So we're not just helping you buy. We're helping you actually use and gain the benefit of whatever it is we're bringing to the table. And we're giving you the map and showing the value we can bring by showing you here are the players that need to be in, on side. Here's what each of them is going to be concerned about. Here's how we can manage those concerns. How Here's what you need to do to bring this together. Here's the people that need to be involved, the decisions that need to be made. So we can actually bring to the table the best practice buying journey. As you say, I mean, if we're a given company, they're in a pretty defined business. They make a product or a service. It shouldn't be that difficult for them to figure out how, on average, this is how it goes, right? But how many actually do it? Well, what are your procurement I'm going to say something awfully self-serving that we have never found. We have never found a company that has been able to accurately manage its buyers by accurately map its buyers buying journey. Part of it is because you're looking through the keyhole and you have this view of the simplicity 
of what it is you're offering and how it brings great value and it's so differentiated. Unfortunately, it's that myopic view. When we map buying journeys for companies and we put it on the wall and they see it, they go, wow, what you've just presented is what we knew, but we've never seen it like this before. It makes so much sense now we see it. So I'm not going to say that you can't map it. In fact, I really believe you should start with trying to think through everything that goes on with one of your prospects or customers when they're buying your product or service. You should. But like I said, you've got to be awfully eyes wide open and knowledgeable about your customers to really map it. But start by asking. Start by asking the customers who have successfully bought and used your product or service. Ask them, what do they go through? And when they say, well, you say, no, take me right the way back. Tell me everybody that got involved. What were the decisions you had to make? And get them to share that with you and listen very carefully. And so, yeah, I'm a very big believer in the starting point is mapping out and understanding that buying journey from start to end. I'm thinking about this and thinking about my own career and all. Who in the supplier's organization should have that skill and ability to be able to do it? And of course, the SAM has a piece of the puzzle, but even they are just from their role and what they have to do on a day-to-day basis, that they don't have all the tools that they need, the analytical tools, the questioning tools, maybe even this, the ability to understand the companies, their customer strategy. I'll tell you the really sad thing here. This is, <laughs> this is gold for a number of reasons. When we work with organizations, and this is across the board, so I'm not picking on anybody here. Right. When we work with organizations, the higher up in the organization we go, or the further into the organization away from the sales force we go, the selling job gets easier and quicker. So the more myopic the view, we usually at the executive level of a company, (laughs) and I don't want to kind of get too flamed here, but at the executive level of the company, they think the selling approach is so simple. They basically think that their product or offering is so differentiated and brings so much value but if you could just talk to the CEO, their eyes would light up. They put you in touch with the right person and they buy within a couple of months. Like, why does it take us nine months? When I meet with customers, their eyes light up in 20 minutes, right? Show them the ROI. Tell them about this. That is so misinformed. Right. And yet we see it time and time again, that the further away from the sales force, the higher you go in the organization, the more simplistic the equation becomes due to what I think is the number one evil love of product, that these people just love their product, they're offering so much that they can't believe that people wouldn't see the value and only a fool wouldn't buy. Now, that's good because who would want leaderships of an organization to say, hey, we're much the same as everybody else and it's ho-hum. You want people to believe in the product, but that's what gets in the way. So your question sparked that up in me that when you ask People inside the organization or at a higher level, they see such a myopic view. Go talk to the CEO, show them the ROI, and only a fool wouldn't buy. That's basically their view of the world. It is so wrong. It is so wrong. So, yes, it is a challenge to really understand all that goes on and accept that that is going to happen, that they are going to worry about how do we train everybody. They are going to worry about Well, that means we're going to have to change our work processes. We're going to have to press the green button instead of the blue button, whatever it may be. We're going to have to ask people to log into this software. Gosh, the list goes on and on and on of things that are 
seemingly trivial that organizations stop and say, gosh, that's too much for us to, to bite off at the moment. And indecision stops the buying journey again. So yes, it is a challenge for an organization to really understand and accept what goes on across the buying journey. But it's amazing when you do it, when you map it, and you see what goes on, it suddenly explains why your pipeline ain't working. It suddenly explains why so much percentage of forecast opportunities don't close ever. Right. Right. It explains it because you can see it. Can almost predict where the weak spot is and where it's going to fray and split. Harvey, you can and you must. And that is the exact opportunity we're faced with. We can tell where is that indecision going to happen. We can tell who's going to get involved. And we can blow away this idea of our champion. Our champion has just got to align a few people, just got to do some stuff, and we should have the order next month. No, it's a colossal mountain to climb they're going to go and do. And we should be able to help them. The safe bet is always no decision, right? That is the, oh. that is the from the procurer's perspective. We've mapped the half-life of a great idea. So as a Sam, you bring into the organization to your champion, to procurement, whoever it is, you bring in a truly good idea. And whoever it is you're talking to is going to say, thank you for that. You really understand our business. I like your proposal. We're going to run with this, right? So that's how it starts. So you've right. got enthusiasm. Two days later. What happens? Two days later, that person who was so enthusiastic gets hit with an organizational change or gets hit with whatever, and kind of their enthusiasm wanes. And then they go back to it and go, yeah, you know, that's a great idea, but it would mean I have to get this person on side. You have to train. Oh, gosh, didn't we look at this two years ago and it didn't work? And their enthusiasm wanes. And what we see in about six to 10 business days, that enthusiasm that was there, that was genuine, goes right the way down and you've reached the half-life where you're not even getting to no decision. You've just kind of gone down and it's no longer a priority. The urgency of the day takes over. And if you can escape that, yes, you're right. They'll start running with it, but then it hits that no decision. We can leave this for now. It's not life and death. We'll come back to it in the future. It's too big a mountain to climb right now. No decision. And you can predict it. And you can mitigate it in most cases. You can either mitigate it or say, you know what? I can't mitigate this one. I'm running from it. I'm going to go and put my energy somewhere else. Fascinating. Boy, that's really great advice. I mean, it makes so much sense to me because we've asked both parts of it. I ask Sam's all the time. Every time I get the chance, who's your toughest customer? Your external customer or your internal customer? 100% internal. The Sam is running into the same problem within their own company. And then they run into it into the customer in essence, kind of run into the same manifestation. It's a different perspective, but it's the same thing. I used to say, I'm just trying to find a person who can say, yes, this is my job. It's easy to find people that will say no, or I don't think so. so, Or (laughs) We're going to change the ranks. It's going to be, okay, go find the people that can say no and manage the situation. Yeah. So you really have to, you really have to constructively confront it. And, you know, there's another little nugget there, I think. When we map the buying journey, you do find multiple players that can say no. You find multiple reasons that can end in no or no decision. And there it is. You've mapped it and you've got that on the wall metaphorically or literally you've got it on the wall and you can see all these issues and points of no decision. So what do you do? You get one and you hope that this is the one that won't go through that maze. You're hoping that your champion has got the internal power and motivation to run this over the finish line without getting trapped in all of that. You are betting on an outlier. This is the issue. 
Yes, it may happen. It will happen in one in 10, 20, 50 times. You're going to get that. But to bet on that every time, that is why you got a problem, that you're betting on the outlier. Come back, look at what usually happens, and tackle that. Don't get caught up with the optimism of trying to think it's an outlier. It may be, enjoy it if it is, but plan on it not being an outlier. Even though my champion is telling me, leave this with me, this is what's going to likely to happen and go manage it and mitigate it. What was the old adage? Plan for the worst and hope for the best. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And if Say, it sounds like a lot of work, it is. It is. <laughs> but oh, this is I, what's fun about being a Sam. You're making things happen that otherwise would not without you. You are making this happen. The thing that I can see that Sam's and Sam companies and Sam programs where they've got multiple Sam's calling on similar types of customers, you really need probably several customers to really go in and understand, to put this composite journey together and have it be complete. And that's what we do for our clients. We help them map out that journey and then we have the map so that every Sam then has a map of the buying journey. So no, not a sales process. That sales process is so 80s, 90s. Right. You can't drag a customer through your sales process anymore. That ain't going to happen. You're going to push them through their buying journey. You can no longer drag an account through your sales process. You are supporting them, driving them, and pushing them through their buying journey. So right. at the end of the day, what do we provide Sam's? We provide them with what we call a buying journey navigator. It's just like, here's how you can tell where somebody's in the buying journey. You can tell if they're in a buying journey and where they are in that buying journey. And then you can see, here's the things that they're thinking about. Here's the key players that are getting involved. Here's what they're worrying about. Here's what they value. And then here's what you should be doing to marshal all of that, utilize the resources of your organization to move the customer through positively through the steps of their buying journey. Interesting. Wow, that's really something. You know, I want to throw as if it wasn't complicated enough. We've talked about COVID and working virtually at all. So there's all those challenges, but then this little global supply chain issue on top of it. I think it would be useful, first of all, get a perspective from a procurement perspective. How are they related to the global supply chain folks and what's going on there? Because that strategy, it seems to me, somebody told me basically the strategy for the last 50 years has been global supply chain, create a global supply chain, reduce your costs and make lots of money. Suddenly, hasn't, that hasn't <laughs> that formula worked for a long time, but it seems to have really had a, a bit of a crash. Yeah. Once again, we've seen things break in an unprecedented, unforecasted way that the impact this has had, because we have optimized so much on the supply chain, that things have really broken. Even where, and of course, the first thing would be, well, you have alternative suppliers. And we were working with a large disk drive manufacturer years ago. And one of the interesting things was that they sell millions of disk drives to somebody like Dell. Dell would never, ever, ever buy a disk drive they could only buy from one supplier, which is really interesting. So if there was anything unique about your disk drive, they would not buy it (laughs) because they never wanted to be beholden to one supplier for a part that was so significant for their product. So... Even that fell apart because uh, the idea of that being if one supplier can't supply you, another one can. But the global supply chain has even broken that, that your plan A, plan B, plan C have all gone 
you can't get chips anywhere or right. whatever it may be, or there aren't the containers to move stuff from wherever to. So yes, we have seen the results of something that was so optimized break. And that has caused, as you say, this whole massive disruption and rethinking about supply chains. What we're hearing, what we're seeing is that people are going to absolutely look for, and procurement are right in the middle of this, they're going to look back again at, okay, we need to know plan A, plan B. We can't be beholden to not just one supplier. We can't be beholden to any one single part of the whole equation. So we need backups all the way through. Vertical integration is a topic that's way back. Vertical integration, domestic supply, big topics that people are looking at, solves some, but not all problems. But certainly the key is procurement is thinking differently here to what they have for the last decade or two. And they are absolutely looking at how can we have suppliers and supply chains that we are not singularly beholden to. Right. And, and they're looking for that would back include, as well. I'm sorry. They're looking at their suppliers, suppliers. Right. It's just a big domino situation. When, yeah, when totally. one part falls, the rest of it just ripples right down the, the rest of the chain. And the other thing is you're not looking at just the input, you're looking at the output. So if you manufacture a product, where is it going? Can you get it to where it's going? Everybody is generally somewhere in the supply chain. So you're not just looking down, you're looking up as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. This was just happened in the last couple of weeks. I saw an article in Fortune where they were basically putting forth the proposition that the CEO of a customer should be talking to their suppliers, their key suppliers. And I looked at that and I said, that I don't believe I've ever seen that written down anywhere in the last 40-ish years that I've been paying attention. Well, word that's massively overused is ecosystems, right? People talk about ecosystems. Yep. Without doubt, we've crawled into a world where we are beholden on our ecosystem. And our ecosystem is our suppliers, our customers, our partners, all those organizations without which we couldn't do business. And here's another opportunity. And as you can probably tell, I think all of this disruption change only spells opportunity for SAMS. It may spell work and change, but it spells opportunity. So I think that very definitely being part of the ecosystem is something that Sam should look at. And absolutely that mapping of executives to executives and making sure that you're recognized as you are a really influential and strategic partner in the ecosystem for that company. And of course, a lot of Sams do represent that. Their companies are part of the ecosystem of their customer. Yes. You know what's interesting to me? This is something that I really learned coming to SAMA and looking at lots of different industries, it actually seems that some of the SAMs, the most who are the best at selling and the best at, at really understanding their customers and all, are making the most, dare I say, mundane products, relatively simple products. But because the product is simple, perhaps it gives them more clarity into what the problems are within the customer and how to solve those problems with the customer. I don't know, but it's just interesting to me that somebody's making ball bearing is a great example. Every ball bearing of a given size, there are multiple manufacturers of it. It has to be the same diameter, same. It has to fit in the same hole. It has to have a lot of the same characteristics. And yet I know they're not all the same. 
Harry, you're touching on my hotspots. Okay. You're just going going to one after another here. So you're lighting (laughs) me up again and again and again. My background was high tech. Right. So I came out of selling high tech. And I got to tell you, I thought high tech salespeople were like top quadrant. We're the best, right? We're paid a lot of money. We're selling the hot technology. I worked for some of the hot technology companies. So I started my own company and I started working with an array of companies. I got a real shock. And you've just described it. I got a real shock that technology salespeople are not top quadrant. Without doubt, the top quadrant are the sounds that come from people who sell what you would think are commodity products. They're selling the very same thing as the guy next door. And this really, really intrigued me. And when I was asked, and I'm still when I'm asked, like, what are the best selling approaches you've ever seen? Who's got the best sales force? Totally, all the time, on the top of my list are companies that sell the same product as the guy next door, as the guy next door, as the guy next door, but the ones that have managed to differentiate themselves. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. Although the very same product can be bought from multiple suppliers, one of those suppliers invariably is going to differentiate itself. They are not going to differentiate themselves with the product or the price. In fact, the price is going to be higher. They're going to get a premium. They're going to differentiate themselves on how they sell. They're going to differentiate themselves on the knowledge they have of their customers and how they translate that knowledge into value for the customer. I'll give you a really simple example. It's, it's kind of tough to take one example, right? But this is just one. We worked with a company that sells commercial pumps. So they sell the water pumps and the pumps that go on to building sites to pump stuff around. And they tend, their customers can be, they're, they're usually not building one residence. They're building subdivisions. They're building shopping malls, this kind of stuff. So they are delivering, they're, they're selling the very same pump as multiple other distributors in the area. So how come they're getting 20% more? How come that people love going to work with them? How come people buy from them time and time again? We did this. They didn't even know what they were doing, but they were so differentiating themselves. Here's what they were doing. Their salespeople would go out to the building sites, meet with the project managers and work out kind of, okay, where are you putting the pumps? Others would do that, right? But then they would use that knowledge that, when a pump was being delivered on the Thursday, they would call the right manager on the Tuesday and said, hey, we're bringing that pump out to you on Thursday. Just want to confirm you want that at gate six. And 10 a.m., good for you? Yeah. Now, we know you're integrating that into that. So how about we put these flanges on the truck and we give this power outlet and things because you can probably need those. So unless you've got it, should I put it on the truck? Sure, please do. So when we talked to the customers, they said, we love those guys. Because other guys deliver a pump, we can't find it. We're delayed for a day or two while we're trying to find it. They delivered it to the shipping dock rather than the gate six. Or when it came, we didn't have the flange where we needed to connect it to them. They said, so we'll buy from them because they save us time. We get what we want. We get it where we want. That's it. That's what they were doing. But they were doing it as just, they were doing it consistently, time and time again. And their sales guys were out on the building sites working out where those pumps were required what flanges were required, where to deliver the pump, and it translated into clear value for the customer. So I love these stories, and I've seen it time and time again. So you are so right. The people who are selling just the same products as the guy next door, their SAMs are working out how to differentiate, not on the product, not on the price, but on what is important to the customer. Right. Amazing. It's incredible. 
Gosh, I feel like, Martin, we could talk for hours about this. I so enjoy this. It's a fantastic. This is my life. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been my life, too. You've managed to infiltrate both camps. I've always been <laughs> in one camp looking the other direction, but it's, it's yeah. a conversation. Yeah. It has been a very, very interesting thing, spending the better part of 20 years. We've talked to nearly 5,000 buyers about how they buy wow. and, and why they don't. And the name of my book is How Customers Buy and Why They Don't. And and why they don't is in red, because that's the trick. In fact, not to get off on another keynote, but we have found in today's world, it's more important to sell and market to why people do not buy than why they do buy. So we shine up our value propositions and we get all concerned about our value propositions. Heck, they wouldn't even be talking to you if they didn't think you could deliver them value. So we're only reinforcing what they already know. The thing we should be targeting is why they don't buy. Why were they interested in what we bring? And then they stop with indecision right. or things slow down. That's what we should be selling and marketing to, why they don't buy. That totally makes sense. Ah, gosh. So, and maybe this answered one of the questions I was going to put to you, but I think there's more, which is where is it headed? Because there's been so much disruption, there's been a lot of change. Everybody feels it. Again, I get the opportunity to talk to different SAMs in different industries all the time. So right now we've got this global supply chain issue and pandemic and all, but we'll figure that all out. I mean, if we don't, I guess it won't matter. It'll all get figured out, but will we ever go back to the way things were? Where is this in terms of fact, your, your uh, fellow Canadian, Wayne Gretzky said, where is the puck going? I skate to where the puck is going. So if I'm Gretzky's the Sam, he's chasing the puck, where's that puck going to be, Martin? That's a great question, a great analogy, of course. And I love that quote of Gretzky's, which if you've seen the original, it's kind of an off-the-cuff comment, but I go to where the puck's going. Again, such an obvious thing, but such a kind of a mind-expanding concept. So yeah, so it's hard to tell in some ways. But first of all, yes, the world has changed. There is certain human nature that's not going to change, but we're not going back. We're not going back to how things were. We're going to continue to evolve. And one of the things about COVID it is it really it's hit us hard and it's accelerated changes that I think would have taken five to 10 years have happened in two. So we've seen this accelerated change, which and this continuous change as well. So where's it all going? I think what we're going to see is a continued polarization. So where's the puck going? I'm going to use this term polarized. We're going to see that if you are supplying something that other people can supply in the way you supply, you're going to be squeezed into the commodity group. Right. You're going to be, it's going to come down to price. It's going to come down to availability. It's going to come down to terms and things like that. Now, that's not all bad. If you choose to go there, and we can see people like Costco or Walmart. <laughs> They've made a very good business out of going to that quadrant. But that's not the Sam quadrant because we can't afford to have strategic camp managers in that world. We're going to replace, if we haven't already, we're going to replace people with web interfaces. That's going to happen. So I see this polarization where if procurement can commoditize you, you're going to move that way. What are we going to have on the other end of the scale, we've already talked about it. This is going to become, in my mind, more and more sharp, where you can differentiate and you can add value. And those are things that we all strive to do. I'm going to be differentiated. I'm going to add value. Again, another massively overused word, value. I'm adding value. Please tell me what value. You know, How do I quantify that? 
in ways that matter to me. Well, I'll go back to my pump. They knew that that distributor was going to deliver the pump to the right spot at the right time with the right fittings. To them, the value of that was building didn't stop. They knew that if that wasn't the case, they could have people sitting around doing nothing for a day while they're trying to find that pump, or they're adjusting all schedules to getting behind while they're trying to find the flange or whatever. So that's value. So the SAM has really got to put their time on that differentiated value. And even though procurement is going to beat you up on price, because that's what they do, and that's what they're trained to do, and that's what they love to do, and that's the power they have over us, they're going to beat you up on price and try and make you feel like you're just a supplier of a commoditized product. That is not the corner you go to. Where the puck is going is it's going to be the value. And I believe you're going to see procurement working with Sam's on that. Actually, clearly, if, if you haven't seen it already, I believe that's where the puck's going. So procurement will work with Sam's on saying, okay, let's define the business value. Let's define what that's worth for us. So we're going to look at that. And if indeed it's there, procurement is going to be the first person to be on side and buy from you. So I think differentiated value is where it's going. And I think you're going to see procurement way more proactive in working with Sam's in terms of defining what the value is that they bring to that company. Interesting. Fascinating. It makes a lot of sense to me. I'm sure you've seen it where there's vendor, preferred supplier, solution yeah. provider, trusted advisor. I'm sort yeah. of hearing that that may just more or less come into two quadrants. You're either going yeah. to be a vendor or you're going to be a trusted advisor. And there's not a lot in between. It's defined by the buyer, not the seller. <laughs> right. You may Absolutely. wish to be a trusted advisor, but the only person that will actually anoint you is the buyer. So Sam's, if you want to know where you stand in the eyes of the customer, ask the customer. They'll tell you, this is how we see you. Gosh, Martin, this thank you so much for your time, your insight. It's just a 40 years of knowledge, experience, <laughs> incredible work that you're doing. I'm sure that your customers are benefiting from what you're doing for them. So thanks for sure. I, I, I hope so, Harvey. I hope so. I hope we're the trusted advisor. And you know, I've had the luxury of working with so many. We've trained 85,000 salespeople around the world. So I've had the luxury of working with so many salespeople across so many industries across the world. You can't help but pick up some good stuff. I can't wait. I hope we have another opportunity to talk at some point in time, Martin. Until I look forward then, to it, Harvey. I really do. Yeah. Go well. Thank you for everything you do for the SAMA community. And thanks for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom with us today. It's a true pleasure, Harvey. Always wanting to help and talk to you guys. Thank you.